Okay, well, let's review last week before we get into this week's message. Last week we talked about Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 30. Where does, where does all sin start? Where does it begin? In your heart. That's right. So, when Jesus is, is talking about the law here, the moral law from the Old Testament, like thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not murder... Does he limit sin to the outward act of doing these things? No, he does not. He goes deeper with it. And the whole heart of the law is to obey the two greatest commandments. And what are those two greatest commandments? John? Right. And in loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself, you fulfill the law. Because that is the heart of the law. That's the whole reason for the law. The reason for the law was not to obey a set of external commands, but hate your brother in your heart or lust after someone in your heart, but still obeying the, the command not to murder and not to commit adultery, because you're still sinning by lusting and hating. Um, and not only is hating someone murder in your heart, but what, what else did we talk about last week that has to do with uh, it'll make you in danger of hellfire? What else shows your heart? Anger? Right. Anger can show your heart. Now, is anger in itself sin? No. Ephesians says, be angry and do not sin. But they go on to say, don't let the sun go down on your anger. What does that mean? That's right. Don't go to sleep angry at anyone. Reconcile. Have forgiveness. If you don't, what will happen in your heart? Bitterness. A tree of bitterness will come up in your heart. And the bigger that tree gets, the harder to rip out. Like any normal tree. Like that locust tree at my house that won't die. <laughs> Look tree that ain't, I won't die. So it, the bigger the tree gets, the harder it is to kill it. Because it's got this large root system going deep into the soil. And the longer you let bitterness and unforgiveness go in your heart, the deeper it gets in your heart, the harder your heart gets, the harder it is to rip that, heart out, rip that bitterness out of your heart. So what comes out of your mouth shows your heart. And we saw last week that if you're making fun of someone or calling them names out of spite, then, of course, there's, sometimes you can play around as long as you're not having a bad heart towards them. Uh, I call my children goofy sometimes, but I'm not trying to make fun of them or put them down by doing that. I'm just, you know, it's a fun name to call them. But if you're, if you're calling someone with anger in your heart, you're, you're making fun of them or putting them down. It shows your heart. Your words that come out of your mouth show the state of your heart. That's when someone tells me they're a Christian in the open air, and then they blaspheme God's name, and then they cuss at me, and then they, they say, I hate you, and they say, I wish you would go to hell. Um, that tells you something about them, doesn't it? Tells you something about them. Okay, and then we look at this issue of plucking out your eye, cutting off your foot, and cutting off your hand. Is Jesus being literal there? So is the Bible always literal? No, it is not. And what kind of uh, literary technique is Jesus using here? What do we call that? Hyperbole. Hyperbole. Hyperbole is when you exaggerate to prove a point. Jesus is simply saying, you take drastic measures to get the sin out of your life. Is plucking out your eye going to stop you from lusting? Is cutting off your hand going to stop you from punching somebody? No. Is cutting off one foot going to stop you from going to the club and getting drunk? No, it's not. But you must take drastic measures to get the sin out of your life. 
Okay, so that's the review from last week. This week we're going to look at just two verses in Matthew. We're going to look at other verses from all around the Bible. Okay, so let's read the first these two verses in Matthew 5, 31 and 32, and we'll get into this week's message. Furthermore, it's been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, Whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Okay. What I'm going to give you this week, I'm going to give you two different views when it comes to divorce and remarriage. Let's define our term first. Divorce. Divorce is when you have two people, a man and a wife, who are married. Something happens within the marriage, and at least one party in the marriage does not want to be married anymore. Okay? So divorce is when two people are married, husband and wife, something happens within that marriage and one or more of the people in the marriage don't want to be married anymore. So they get a divorce. And then, at least according to America's laws, they're considered not married any longer. Okay? I'm going to give you two views today the two most prevalent views when it comes to this issue in the Bible and most you decide for yourself which view you're going to believe. I think both of them have convincing points and both of them have weak points. I want you to decide for yourself. The first view is called the exception clause view. Exception clause. Clause is spelled C-L-A-U-S-E. Exception clause. The second view is no remarriage except death. No remarriage except death. And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to go through all the scriptures that I have at hand for this issue. And I'm going to go through them all first for the first view, the exception clause view. So this, what I'm about to give you right now is going to be the exception clause view. And then I'm done with that, I'm going to go back to the same scriptures and give you the no remarriage until death view. Okay, so let's start with the exception clause view. This is how someone who has that view reads reads verses uh, 31 and 32. So it says, uh, Whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual morality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So according to this view, the exception clause view, this verse is read as, If someone commits adultery on you, you're married, a husband and wife, and your husband commits adultery on you, and your wife commits adultery, the husband or wife that has, has been pure and been faithful is allowed to divorce that person and remarry someone else without being an adulterer. Okay? So that's why they read Matthew 5, 31-32. Uh, then we go to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And uh, we could start in verse 1, but I'm only going to touch on the two verses that are most uh, pertinent to this situation. And that's verses 11 and 12 of Mark 10. So he, so he, Jesus, said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. If a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So they would read these verses right here in Mark 10, 11, and 12. They would read these verses in light of Matthew 5, 31 and 32. Okay? 
So they see in Matthew, uh, Mark 10, 11, and 12, there's no exception, is there? doesn't talk about adultery. doesn't talk about sexual morality there. It simply says, if you marry someone who's divorced, you commit adultery. That's all it says. But they would read these, these scriptures right here in light of the ones found in Matthew 5, 31-32. Let's go back to Matthew 19 for a second. And Matthew 19 is the same exact situation you see in Mark 10. But in Matthew 19, you see the exception clause there. Now this doesn't mean that Matthew 19 and Mark 10 contradict each other. It means that Mark left out these words of Jesus when he recounted the story of Jesus. He left out this part of it. But Matthew chose not to. Uh, Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual morality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced, commits adultery. Once again, this view reads Matthew 19, verse 9, the same way they read Matthew 5, 31 and 32, and it basically means that if you get divorced for any reason except for sexual morality, you're committing adultery, and your spouse is committing adultery by getting remarried. But, if someone commits adultery in the marriage, the party who has not committed adultery can divorce the, the party who committed adultery and get remarried and not be an adulterer. Does that make sense? Everyone's following me? Okay. Luke chapter 16. And here we have a same situation. And Luke has a, just a short snippet. He doesn't go into detail like, the other, like Mark and Matthew does. Let's give a short snippet of what Jesus said. Luke 16 and verse 18. This is basically the same thing that Mark uh, 10, 11, and 12 says. It said, uh, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. So you see, no exception clause there. No, if someone commits adultery, you can get divorced and get remarried. It doesn't say that. It just says, if you divorce and get remarried, you commit adultery. But the people who believe in the exception clause view would review this verse, Luke 16, 18, in light of Matthew 5, 31-32, and Matthew 19, verse 9. Okay? All right, let's go on to 1 Corinthians, uh, Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And starting in verse 1. Romans 7 and verse 1 says this, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she is married to another man. So, People who believe in the exception clause view would say, well, this is not talking about someone who is involved in the exception clause. It's talking about someone who divorced someone for no good reason. Not for a reason of sexual morality. Not for a reason of adultery. They're just divorcing their husband or divorcing their wife for no good reason. Which happens a lot in our society. Happened a lot back then as well. And really, the, they would also say that this passage right here, Romans 7, 1-3, is not really addressing remarriage. Not addressing that here. It's simply addressing the law. That's the whole point of this passage here. 
It's addressed to the law and how it has dominion over a man as long as he lives. But Christ died to the law, and we're in Christ, we die to the law with him. And all it's saying here, according to this view, is that if your spouse dies, then you are free to remarry without being an adulterer or adulteress, no matter what. No matter what happened before then. Now you are free to marry without being an adulterer or without being an adulteress. Okay? And that includes even if you got remarried, you were divorced and got remarried while that first spouse was still alive and then that spouse died, now, even though you might have been considered an adulterer or adulteress before that because they were still alive, now you are not because the spouse has died. And you're freed from that law. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And then starting in verse 10. Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now the exception clause, you would say, this is speaking to believers here, which makes sense because it says, now to the married I command. Paul's commanding both parties in the marriage here, which means he's speaking to believers. To the married I command. Two believers who are following Jesus Christ, never have a reason to get divorced. Because the following Jesus Christ, is one of them committed commit adultery on the other? The following Jesus Christ, if they have problems, they should reconcile those problems, correct? Within the marriage. They should not go to sleep with anger at each other, and they should be able to work through just about anything. Um, so if, if people are living holy, they're living above sin, not committing adultery, sex morality, there should never be a reason to get divorced. There may be reasons to separate for a period of time according to these two verses. Verse 11, But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. So if they're having too many problems in the marriage, Paul gives the leeway for them to be separated for a period of time, but they're not to get divorced and not to get remarried. Otherwise, they become an adulterer or adulteress if they get remarried. And then he goes on to say, and Paul is going to talk about here about someone who's married to an unbeliever. Now, as Christians, we know we shouldn't marry unbelievers, right? But what happens if you have two unbelievers that get married? One believer, gets, one person gets saved after they get married. Now you have a believer and an unbeliever married together. Now what you do? Well, Paul addresses that now. In verse 12. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. Any woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let him not let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know a wife whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know a husband whether you will save your wife? So the concern for the believer, who became a believer after marriage, the concern they had with being married to unbelievers is that, first of all, uh, they would defile their children, and second of all, that their children themselves, that they came from that union, would be defiled just naturally because they had an unbeliever and a believer who brought them into the world. And Paul's addressing, he said, listen, if the unbeliever is willing to stay with you, 
They're willing to see your life, live for Jesus Christ. They're willing to hear what you have to say about Jesus Christ. Hear your prayers, see your Bible reading, see your influence, see you going to church, see you reaching out to the lost, see you teaching your children the right way. If they're willing to be in the midst of that, then they're being sanctified in some sense. They're hearing the truth. They're seeing the truth. And if they're willing to stay amongst you, there's a good chance they could get saved. But if someone is an unbeliever, married to a believer, and they don't like the unbeliever, the believer, they don't like what they're doing, they don't like hearing the gospel preached, they don't like seeing their life lived out for Jesus Christ, if they want to depart, it says, don't try to stop them. Let them go. Don't try to stop them. It's not your job to run after them. Because it says right in verse 16, how do you know a wife whether you will save your husband? How do you know a husband whether you will save your wife? So you're supposed to let them go. But hopefully, that will never apply to anyone in this household. Because everyone here knows the truth. So we should all become Christians at, the, at a certain age and live our life for Jesus Christ. And if that's true, should we marry unbelievers? That's right. You won't have these problems. That's called being unequally yoked. And what will happen to the Christian who's bonded together with a non-Christian who lives for sin all day? They're going to end up dragging them down eventually if you don't pull them up with you. And if you try to pull them up with you and become a Christian, they don't want to become a Christian. They're either going to drag you down with them or they're going to go their separate way. Because what fellowship does light have with darkness? None. When the light comes into the world, what happens to the darkness? It goes away. But there's no light. The darkness is dark. You can't even see where you're walking. So light and darkness have no fellowship. And it says in verse 15, a brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. Okay? If you relate this back to Romans, don't, don't turn back there. Just let, read, let me read it to you for a second. We turn back to Romans 7 for a second. It says uh, in verse uh, two, for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. Now, people will try to coincide this bound here to this bondage over here. Two different Greek words. So they don't, they're not relating to each other here. Even most people who believe in the exception clause would say that. Okay, they admit that. Uh, so if an unbeliever leaves you and they don't commit adultery, they stay unmarried, they don't get remarried, then you're still supposed to stay unmarried yourself. Unless they want to reconcile or unless they commit adultery. If they commit adultery on you, then according to the exception clause view, we look at Matthew five, thirty one to thirty two and Matthew nineteen nine again, you'll see, according to this view, that you're free to remarry again because you're free to divorce them because they commit adultery on you. That's usually what an unbeliever will do. An unbeliever who loves their sin and who will depart from the believer they're married to, they're going to go and commit adultery and get remarried most times. Maybe they'll stay unmarried and just commit adultery anyway. And the believer in that case is free to divorce that unbeliever and get remarried according to the exception clause view. And then we have verse 39 of 1 Corinthians 7 which says, A wife is bound by the law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she's at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. So we have this verse in 39. Of course, they would, people from the exception clause, if you would view this verse 39, they would view it in light of the exception clause. That all verse 39 is saying is that if someone does die, then you are free to be married, be married without committing adultery. 
but it does not address the exception clause. So people who believe in the exception clause, you would say, well, that doesn't apply universally across the board because you just gave an exception. That's what they would say. Let's turn to a couple of... Uh, Let's just turn to one Old Testament passage real quick. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Now, the Old Testament doesn't say much about divorce. But let's say a little bit. Deuteronomy 24. And we'll start in verse 1. Okay. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. The latter uh, husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. When her latter husband dies, took her as his wife, and her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for it is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin in the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Okay, so in this scripture passage right here, the husband finds some uncleanness in the wife. Sound, it's a little bit like saying that that's sexual morality or adultery in the wife. Sends her away with a certificate of divorce. She goes and remarries. Now, the husband... In this situation, it doesn't say anything about him getting remarried, but this talks about her leaving the husband and getting married to someone else. But she's not called an adulteress in the process. He's not called an adulterer in the process. And people who believe in the exception clause would point that out. But we have to deal with this issue of Matthew 5.31. It says, Furthermore, it has been said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife. So you have Jesus going deeper with the law. And they would point out that what happened was, over time, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and so forth, would allow people to divorce for any reason whatsoever. And that's what Jesus is coming against in Matthew 19, when he's asked this question in verse 3. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And Jesus says, And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and wife and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. And in verse 7 it says, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, because, because, Moses, because of your hardness of your heart, permitted you to divorce your wife, but from the beginning it was not so. And he goes into the exception clause in verse 9 of Matthew 19. So they would say what happened was Moses' law in the beginning was given to them. It's permitted because of the hardness of their heart. But then Jesus, once again in verse 9, gives another exception clause. Almost repeating what Moses said in, in Deuteronomy 24. So the exception clause people would say what Jesus is coming against here in Matthew 19 is being divorced for just any reason. There is still a reason you can get divorced, but not just for any reason. Of course, they would say Matthew 19.9 is giving the freedom to remarry for the party who was innocent, who's been, adultery has been committed upon them, they're able to divorce and remarry without committing adultery. Okay, well I think that about sums up this view. Does anyone have any questions so far on this view?
Okay. Hey, brother. Okay. All right, let's go back to Matthew 5 again. And let's read this. And let, this is the second view now. The view that says you cannot have remarriage unless one spouse has died. No matter what a spouse has done, if adultery has been committed, you cannot remarry unless one of the spouses has died. Okay, Matthew 5, 31, 32. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except for sexual morality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So they would say the first part, yes, you can get divorced if someone commits adultery on you. Without the divorce. But the second part applies universally across the board to everyone, whoever marries a woman who is divorced, for any reason, commits adultery. What it says, according to this view, that even if someone divorces for legal reasons, for proper reasons, which is adultery committed upon them, or maybe they're the one who committed adultery, if they remarry before the their former original spouse has died, they are committing adultery with their new spouse. So in this view, there's exception to get divorced, but there is no exception to get remarried, except for death. Matthew 19. Just read that a second ago. Let's read it again. And I want you to hear Jesus' heart in this issue here about marriage. No matter if you decide to believe the exception clause view or decide to believe the no remarriage until death view, you need to hear Jesus' heart in this marriage issue. <clears throat> Starting in verse 3 of Matthew 19. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Listen to what Jesus says here. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. You have to hear, the, if something is put together, let's say you use some super glue, and you glue a salt and pepper shaker together, a plastic one. This one you see, you know, the disposable ones. What happens if you pull it apart? What's going to happen to the salt and pepper shaker? They're going to break. And the salt and pepper is going to go spilling all over the place. And when you hear about divorce, I want you to picture this in your mind. It's like ripping two people apart. And who joined them together according to this? God joined them together. Let no man separate. So, this is why you need to be very careful who you marry. This is not some game to play. This is not some about, so this is about your feelings and how I, I like the way this person looks. It's a very serious thing to marry somebody. And when you marry someone, in God's eyes, you are joined together as one. You only are two now. You're one. Flesh. It's almost like taking my arm trying to rip it off my body. It's part of my flesh. When you rip it off, you're tearing me apart. Take the people who have been put together by God and rip them apart. Now you don't have one flesh. You have a half and a half. So it's a very serious thing to, to get divorced. And in our society, in America, to get divorced for the stupidest reasons. Oh, we had a fight. So what? Husbands and wives fight all the time. Work it out. Be an adult. Grow up. Work it out. People have a hard time staying faithful sometimes, too. You need to stay faithful to your spouse. But that's why when you make your vows to your spouse, you get married, till death do us part, 
People these, these days just say their vows and don't think it means a word. Don't think it means anything. When you say vows, it's got to mean something to you and to the person you're saying it to. And then in verse 7 it says, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, prevented you to divorce for your, your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. So Jesus is addressing, according to this view, Matthew, Deuteronomy 24, and he's saying, listen, in the past you allowed divorce just for uncleanness. And the second case in Deuteronomy 24, doesn't say, he said he found some reason he didn't like her, is basically what it's saying. If you don't like your spouse, and too bad, you're stuck with them. That's what Jesus is saying here. And um, it was because of the hardness of the heart that Moses permitted that. And then in verse 9, it says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her or is divorced commits adultery. And the last part of the statement, according to this view, would apply to everyone universally. If you marry someone who has been divorced, whether it's been for adultery or not, you are committing adultery, perpetual adultery with this person by marrying them who's been divorced. Or if you've been divorced and you were married to someone else, According to this view, you're committing perpetual adultery. Now listen to the disciples' response to this, what Jesus said. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Now you see, they're, they're seeing how serious this is. They're saying, man, if that's the truth, maybe I shouldn't marry at all. Yeah, maybe some people shouldn't marry. Marriage is not something that you're, you should definitely do. It's something you need to pray about. Maybe God wants you to be a eunuch for his kingdom. Maybe God wants you not to be married. In 1 Corinthians 7, we'll see here in a minute, when you're not married, your thoughts are completely focused upon the Lord. But when you are married, your thoughts are divided between the Lord and your spouse and the children that come from that spouse. So someone who's unmarried, they can focus on the Lord more than... I'm not tell you this. I love my wife and children wouldn't give up for the world. But before I became married, before I had children, I had a lot more time. Believe it or not, I had a lot more time. I, would, I could have spent a lot more time focusing on God and focusing on, uh, on what I wanted to do. But God called me to be married. And because He's called me married, my wife has been a helpmate to me. And, and through our union together, we're developing disciples for Jesus Christ, who hopefully will go into all the world and preach the gospel. But people need to weigh these things out. Marriage is something that every single person should do. Some people, call them that. Some people will be called by God not to marry. Of course, if you've gotten married, um, too late now. You should have thought about it beforehand. If you're married, you're, you're supposed to be married now. Because there is no divorce except for sex morality. And according to this view, there's no remarriage at all unless the spouse dies. And in verse 11, But he said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born thus from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. A eunuch is someone who never is married, never engaged in any kind of sexual activity ever. That's what a eunuch is. Some people will set themselves apart to be that for God. They say, God, I'm not going to get married. God, I'm not going to have children for your sake. I want to be as close to you as I possibly can be. Okay? And then we turn to Mark chapter 10. And in Mark 10, of course, there is no exception clause in Mark 10, 11, and 12. And see, the people who believe in this view, the no exception clause view to get remarried, 
the no remarriage unless someone has died view, they would say, we would interpret Matthew 19 and Matthew 5 in light of Mark 10, not the other way around. So Mark 10, 11, and 12 says this, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. If a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So they would say, look, you get remarried at all, you're committing adultery. That's what this view would say. And here's another strong point this view makes. What if someone back in the first two centuries of the church, where they didn't have a Bible put together like this, they had letters here and there, some churches might only have the Gospel of Mark. Some churches might only have the Gospel of Luke, but they don't have the Gospel according to Matthew. What are they going to do? If they read just Mark, they're going to tell them, listen, there's no exception clause at all. If they read just Luke, Luke 16, 18, there's no exception clause there. And they would understand that they cannot be remarried unless someone has died. Luke 16, 18, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, there are some people, a modification upon this, we would say, they go back to Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, and the Greek word there is porneia. It simply means someone who commits just sexual morality. But there's actually a Greek word for adultery. An adulterer is when two people are married and one of them has sexual morality with somebody else. And some people who believe in this no remarriage until death view, they would say, well, Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 is talking about when they're in the betrothal period. Remember that? We talked about that in Matthew 1? Jesus, uh, Josh, uh, Joseph and Mary were in the betrothal period. Were they literally married yet? They weren't living in the same house yet. They weren't, hadn't consummated the marriage yet. But according to Matthew 1 he put his wife away. He divorced her. He put her away. It says in Matthew one nineteen. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Now the Greek word behind put her away is the same Greek word behind divorce. So they would say, well, in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, they're allowed to put her away or put him away because they're still involved in the betrothal period. So from that view... They're not even, rem- not even really married yet. Some people would take that, that perspective of Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. Now let's go to Romans 7, 1 through 3. Let's just start in verse 2. For the woman who has a husband is bound by law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So that while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law, so she's no adulteress, though she has married another man. So they would take this scripture, and they would take this scripture as the precedence above Matthew 5.19. So look, this is what the scripture says. And, and in light of this scripture, we're going to interpret Matthew 5.19 and say, listen, if you get remarried, no matter what, no matter what was the reason for divorce, if you get remarried, while your, your first spouse is still alive, you are an adulterer or an adulteress. The only way you're free to get remarried is if your spouse dies. Your former spouse dies. Alright, and it, it, I guess what I, I can bring up with this is if someone remarries before their spouse dies and then their spouse dies, they're no longer an adulterer or adulteress, even though they were for a period of time while their spouse was still alive. And I think if we take this, this view, 
what this tells us is that God's view of the situation is this. If you marry someone, in his eyes, you're still married to them as long as they're alive. No matter what happens, if there's a divorce, uh, even if uh, they get remarried to someone else, even if you've been remarried three or four times since then, in God's eyes, you're still married to them. Because you made a covenant for God and men that you're going to be with them until death do us part. So from God's perspective, you're still married to that person. If you're married to someone else, while that person is still alive, you're not really married to that second person in God's eyes. You're committing adultery with that person in God's eyes. That's God's perspective. We take this view. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, once again. Verses 10 and 11. Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried to be reconciled to her husband, and the husband is not to divorce his wife. So, they would say, this is not just talking to believers here. It's talking to everybody. If your husband leaves or your wife leaves, whether they're an unbeliever or they're a professed believer, you're not to remarry at all. You're to be reconciled or remain unmarried. That's the facts. That's what they would say. And then even down in the passage after that, verses 12 through 16, where the unbeliever leaves, you're still not permitted to be remarried. Because you go back to verse 10 and 11, they would say, look, verse 10 and 11 applies to that perspective too. If the unbeliever leaves, you're still to remain unmarried or be reconciled. You're not to divorce. And of course, verse 39 which says their wife is bound by the law as long as her husband lives. If her husband dies, she's at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Okay, so they would take that verse and, and they would say, even if you've been divorced for a good reason, which is adultery, they're not to be remarried unless the spouse dies. Okay, let's address some problem situations here for both perspectives here. Let's say you have two people who are unbelievers and one of them is married before. This is while they're unbelievers all the time. And then this couple that's married, and one of them has been married before. This is the second marriage for one of them. Now they both become believers. Now, from the exception clause view, most people who believe in that view would say, well, if they were unbelievers before, it doesn't count, and uh, therefore they should just stay the way they are and stay married, and God doesn't see it as adultery. They've repented of their sin, and therefore they, they can stay in that marriage. You know, two wrongs don't make a right. Well, I get divorced again. So that's the, most people who believe in the exception clause would say that. Uh, people who don't believe in the exception clause, I believe in no remarriage until death clause, they would say, well, listen, these two people are in perpetual adultery right now. Because the former spouse, even though they're unbelievers, and they would say, well, there, there aren't separate rules for unbelievers than there are for believers. The same rules apply across the board. Whether they realize it or not. And these two people become believers, but one has been married before, they need to break off this marriage because in God's eyes, they're not really married anyway. They're committing perpetual adultery. And that spouse who's been married before needs to try to go back to the first spouse. And if they can't, if that spouse is not running to reconcile, or if that spouse has been remarried, they need to stay single the rest of their life until that spouse has died, or until that spouse comes back. And for the, the, the second spouse who got, re, who got saved and is married for the first time now, not the second time, the, it's her first marriage, she, in God's eyes, was considered an adulteress all the time, 
But now she's broken off that adultery, she's considered single. Never having been married, because that wasn't a real marriage in God's eyes, according to, according to this perspective. So she's free to marry now, because the whole time she wasn't married, she was committing adultery, from the second perspective view. And then we have this issue of, what about children? Because if someone realizes they're committing adultery ten years down the road, maybe they didn't been a believer that whole time, and they had five children, now do you leave that spouse and those children to go try to go back to your, your first wife and reconcile to her? Well, the first you, of course, would say no. Of course not. You'd stay with them. You'd repent of your adultery and you'd stay with them. And, and God's, God's okay with that. But the second view, the no remarriage until death, you would say, yes, you must break off that, that union because it's adultery in God's eyes. You're supposed to support that spouse financially, support those children, and raise them as much as you can, but you shouldn't be living with them because you have to live in the same household as, as the woman who you've been committing adultery with. And you should try to be reconciled to your former spouse. And people who bring up this issue of what about the, the spouse and the children in the second marriage, a lot of times what they miss out on is the spouse and the children in the first marriage. What becomes of them? The divorce has rendered their, their lives. I'll give you a personal testimony. I was eight. My sister was nine. My parents got divorced. They basically ruined my life. And, my sister's, and to this day, it ruins my sister's life. I mean, she has responsibility for what she does and her own actions, but it's ruined her. She still blames my dad for things. At 33 years old. We're talking about 24 years later. I remember, I, I remember so vividly that night. Better I remember anything in my past. Eight years old, sleeping on the top floor of my North Carolina home. I heard my mom and dad fighting about mid. I looked at my clock; it was midnight. I wonder why I remember this so vividly. And I heard them yelling and screaming. And I thought to myself, as an eight-year-old, I'm gonna go downstairs and tell them to stop fighting and make everything right. I heard them yelling. I heard both of them crying. My dad saying that was it. But then I fell back to sleep. My dad woke up the next day and said, "Sorry, son, I'm leaving." I was like, "What do you mean you're leaving? I'm leaving." He went to my sister next, and she started crying, and I was like, I didn't understand what was going on. And for a long time, I thought it was my fault, because me and my sister got in fights, and we were disobedient at times. And so it can really ruin a child's life. So I think sometimes people who, who are asking this question, they have no compassion for the first spouse and the children from the first marriage, and how it's affected them in a negative way. So that's the way they would view the children and wife situation. But in both situations, I guess you can say the better safe than sorry view is this. If your spouse dies, you're free to remarry. We know that for a fact, for both views. So to summarize, the first view says you can get divorced if your spouse commits adultery. And that's the only reason why. And you can get remarried too. The second view says you can get divorced if the spouse commits adultery, but you're not to remarry unless that spouse dies. That's how I summarize both views. And let me just say one more thing. For those who have been divorced and are remarried and the spouse has died, you need to stop looking backwards. 
if the spouse, if you if you got remarried before your spouse, your first spouse died, and now that spouse has died, he or she has died. Stop looking backward to your mistakes. Press on toward the goal in Christ Jesus. Don't do the same things again. But I, I think what we need to consider in these issues here, when we're deciding what we're going to believe, remember this. We can't decide we're going to believe this issue based upon our personal feelings, based upon emotions, or based upon our experience, or what we think we heard from God. We need to base what we believe upon the Word of God alone, objectively, coming to it, seeing what it says, and trying to put our emotions and feelings aside and what we think we heard from God. I mean, if, if, if the second view is right, no remarriage until death, and two, two people who have been divorced are now believers now, and they say, well, I think we're supposed to be married. If the second view is right, and they think they're hearing from God, you're supposed to marry this person? Yeah, you're supposed to marry this person. If the second view is right, no remarriage to that, could they possibly be hearing from God? Of course not. They're not hearing from God. They're hearing from themselves. Because if God says no remarriage until death, you couldn't possibly be hearing from Him. Go to the exception clause view. Let's say you're having a hard time with your marriage. And you're praying about it, God help me, and you think God tells you you can get divorced. But your spouse has not committed adultery on you. Could you possibly be hearing from God? Of course not. So let's put our feelings aside, our emotions aside, our supposed experiences with God aside, and we must judge our emotions, our feelings, and our experience in light of what the Scripture objectively says. Now for some people this is going to be a hard teaching, if they, especially if they come to the second perspective. Because lots of believers I know, who I think are godly believers, who have been remarried, but their first spouse is not dead. If they come to the conclusion that the second perspective is right, they have some hard choices to make. They have a hard road ahead. But we must be willing to obey God no matter the cost. Now, it's easy for me to say that, because I don't have this problem. I haven't been remarried. Angela hasn't been remarried. So it's a lot easier for me to say that than for someone who has the situation. And I'm, uh, you know, I can't even say that I empathize. I, I, I can't relate because I don't, I'm not in the situation. But all I can do is give you God's truth and be honest with myself and honest with the Word of God and honest with you about what it says. I hope you at least appreciate that. That's everyone who's, who's, who's listening, including people who are listening by video. Okay, well, let's... If anyone have any questions, let's, let's go ahead and address those if you have questions. So John 4. Yeah. Went with the well. Married to one. You would just address that in general? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, John 4, and let's start in uh, verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and one who you now have is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. So people from the exception clause, they say, Look, she's actually had 
five husbands. Jesus didn't correct her and say she hasn't had five husbands. He actually said, yes, you've had five husbands. And so the exception was, look, they're legitimate husbands. So, so you can get remarried and not be an adulterer. Because Jesus didn't call her an adulterer for being remarried. He called her an adulterer because she's living with someone right now who she's not married to. So the exception clause, we would point that out. But the other view would say, listen, you're, you're, you're making the argument from silence here. Just because Jesus doesn't call her adulterer, that means she's not an adulterer. Just because Jesus called her, said she had five husbands, that means he meant it from his perspective she had five husbands. It means from her perspective she had five husbands. The exception clause, we would also point out that Jesus didn't say, go back to your first husband and try to get reconciled to him. But a lot of this is, is, is very subjective, okay? It's, 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 I think, this, first of all, this is not a teaching scripture here. This is recounting what happened. It's not Jesus teaching on remarriage and divorce. This is just an experience of what happened, and Jesus is recounting, or John is recounting what happened between Jesus and this woman. But just because he doesn't address that with her does not mean that he wouldn't have taught that to her. So it's an argument from silence, I think, from either perspective. Now, there's one of the passages that you might want to read on your own time is Ezra chapter 9 and 10. And the reason I bring it up, and I haven't brought it up yet, well, first of all, the reason I haven't brought it up yet is because I don't think it applies to the situation. Secondly, the reason I do bring it up now is because some people do think it applies. Personally, I don't think it does apply. But in Ezra chapter 9 and 10, what you find is the Israelites coming back into the land and the Israelites marry non-Israelites. Did God allow that? God forbid Israelites marrying pagans. It wasn't allowed. And Ezra was grieved over this and he called an assembly and, he, and all the Israelites who were married to pagan unbelievers, they left them. Left them like that. But this doesn't address remarriage. This passage, Ezra 9 and 10, doesn't address divorce. And it definitely doesn't address our modern New Testament experience because in 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul says, if an unbeliever leaves, let him leave. But you shouldn't leave an unbeliever. So this obviously doesn't apply to us in the New Testament times. So even Ezra 9 and 10, it's a completely different situation. You don't have people leaving because of adultery. You don't have people leaving because uh, the unbeliever is leaving and they committed adultery. Uh, it has nothing to do with remarriage there. It could be the first marriage for some of these Israelites, for all we know. But some people think this, this applies somehow. I don't know how they think it applies. It doesn't apply, in my opinion. Because God is telling them to leave this pagan spouse that they're with that they shouldn't have been with in the first place. I guess the only way that would apply to us is that, as Christians, we should never marry an unbeliever. But if we do marry an unbeliever, should we get divorced from them? You've made your choice. Now you're stuck with that person until they die, or until they, or if you believe in the section clause, until they commit adultery. And then you can get remarried. But if you believe in the second, you can only divorce them. You can't remarry at all. So it's teaching on marriage, no matter which view you take, difficult view. Of course, the exception clause is a little easier. And I'm prone, just because of how easy, much easier it is, to take the second view myself. And I'm probably going to teach my children the second view because it's a better safe than sorry view. But I want you to decide for yourself.
very sensitive subject, to say the least. Are there more questions? Marriage isn't a covenant with God. Marriage is a covenant between two people. A covenant with God is when you become a Christian. Sure. So I guess if we're going to take that perspective, just temporarily for a second here, that unbelievers who are married are not under a covenant from God. That means every unbelieving marriage is not really a marriage in God's eyes. I don't think different rules apply. I mean, the, when Jesus talks about marriage, he goes back to the very beginning with Adam and Eve. The man and woman should leave their wife. Right. From the beginning, no matter what, who you are. It has nothing to do with laws in Deuteronomy or the laws Jesus is, is recounting in Matthew 5 19. It's two shall leave their, the husband shall leave their, his parents, and the two shall become one flesh. And the God is joined together. Women to separate. That's right. So, I don't think it applies simply to unbelievers. If you're going to say that, then every unbeliever who's married now, they're not really married in God's eyes. If one becomes a believer, they can leave them automatically. They're not really married. Now they're committing fornication. I don't think that's the way the Bible teaches that. You know, I mean, the Bible makes it clear if an unbeliever is, if you're married to an unbeliever, you're not to marry, leave them at all. So obviously, before they, if they became a Christian after they were, they were married, God saw them as a marriage beforehand. That's right. A sanctifying influence in their life, a holy influence in their life. That if, if they're willing to stay there and be a, and take into the influence, influence them drastically. Uh, there's a story I read about a a, a family that had a grandmother that was saved, none of the other family was saved, and the the parents would always let the children gradually go over her house. So they're willing to submit to her in sanctifying influence. They're, they're willing to be a, be around her. They kept sending their children over there, and the children got influence, and most of the grandchildren became Christians through the grandmother's influence, not through the parents' influence. But the parents were willing to put up with that. In the same way, if an unbeliever is willing to put up with the believer, they're getting an influence, whether they like it or not. And a lot of times, they'll become a good person. They'll have good morals. I mean, one person, I mean, my, my stepfather was was a good guy before I, my mom became a Christian, but he's since become a better guy, if you ask me. He's still a sinner. He still needs to trust in Christ and turn from his sins. not a Christian. But if he had a wicked wife as a wife, he'd be a lot worse off than he is now, just because of the influence in the household. Another example, my sister came and lived with me for nine months. For nine months, she got off depression medicine. She was a happy person. She worked hard. Uh, she was a law-abiding citizen, not getting involved in drugs and stealing and going to jail because of the sanctifying influence she was involved in. She in the church every week. She goes back to Maryland, she gets involved in drugs again, she gets put in jail again. It's just an influence that's involved in her life. And that's what you see in, in 1 Corinthians 7 with the unbelieving husband and believing wife or vice versa. 
sanctifying influence. That doesn't mean they're saved. So. All right, any other questions? Objections? Okay. All right, well, I guess we'll go ahead and...